All right, so this is your libertarian take on Christian nationalism, and I'm going to get around to talking about Christian nationalism, but I'm going to take my time getting there. For the moment, as an introduction, let me just say that I think that this should be taken as a very positive talk. I'm going to have some critiques, but mostly I aim more toward what you could maybe call a working relationship between libertarians and Christian nationalists. And the reason for such optimism on my part is that I believe that part of what we are seeing with the Christian nationalist movement is, first of all, American conservatives taking on more libertarian positions than I've seen in the past. Secondly, I think their emphasis on what is needed culturally um, is very compatible with libertarianism. Now, the Christian nationalist rhetoric um, isn't quite so kind towards libertarianism, however, so I have a lot of work here and, and maybe I'm overly optimistic. Um, so what sources am I using from the Christian nationalists to represent their views? Well, it's really a conglomeration of a bunch of things. So Andrew Isker, um, who many of us know, and Andrew Torba wrote a book on Christian nationalism, but there are various articles, blog posts, and if you really want to know what Christian nationalists uh, think and feel, just take a swan dive into that cesspool called Twitter, and uh, you can read all about it there. But um, but I'll also be drawing from Stephen Wolf's new book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, as well. Anyway, there's a, there's a couple of very positive things that I'm seeing from Christian nationalists that I think will help me. And, and the first place um, that I want to start is that they, they emphasize a, a real importance on using the dictionary. Okay, and, and by that we mean just recognizing objective truths in the world. So one plus one equals two, up is up, down is down, etc. And as the Christian nationalists want to communicate to the world what they are saying and what they're not saying, they have said that they want to be very careful to define their terms. And I want to press down a little harder than them on that because as I want to show here, they don't really carefully define libertarianism. In fact, I see them misrepresented. Um, I thought about getting a PowerPoint and, and putting up quotes from different articles and blog posts that demonstrate that, but just one example here will suffice. So this is from a blog post um, that was written by an influential Christian nationalist, and he says this, quote, liberalism and libertarianism have utterly failed. Burning down police stations, looting department stores, chopping up little babies and selling their body parts, buying and selling eggs, renting wombs, castrating teenage boys and girls, and demanding that sexually provocative clowns be given access to children. All of these things in the name of liberty and justice. Yeah, we're going to need a dictionary. We need a rule book. Let us stop with this childish nonsense that says words simply have self-evident meanings. End quote. So... There's that. And I, I say amen to bringing the dictionary. So we will, we will, because um, I see writings like this from Christian nationalists about libertarianism, and I think, it's, I think it's kind of ironic. But for now, the second thing that impresses me from the Christian nationalists is their emphasis on the ne necessity of living in ways that are consistent with the nature of the world that God has created. So creation has a nature, right? That's the up is up, down is down, and all that. But more specifically, the Christian nationalists are asking the big questions about individuality, families, society, culture, 
and nations. And they're asking how these various layers of community should be formed and shaped by, um, by our understanding of the nature of the world and how things operate in this world. Um, libertarians have done much work on this, so let's start there. Let's open up the dictionary. What is libertarianism? Well, libertarianism is an answer to this question. When is it okay for you or for me or for anybody to commit violence against someone else or their, their possessions, their property? And there's an assumption to this question. Actually, there's two. The first one is it assumes that private property is a thing in the first place. But the other assumption is that this is a general moral issue that applies to everyone equally. So the answer to this question can't change just because you have red hair or because you have a college degree or because you wear a uniform of some sort. This is a moral question that applies across the board to every individual. And so the libertarian answer to the question is, violence against someone or their property is only justified if that someone has first committed or threatened violence. Okay, so it's wrong to randomly go up to a guy on the street and sucker punch him, right? You can't do that unless you have some truthful evidence that he's committed violence against you prior to that, or that he is some sort of imminent and credible threat. So libertarianism takes this answer to this question, finds it to be morally true, and seeks to apply it consistently in the world. The libertarian answer to the question of when violence is justified is often referred to as the non-aggression principle. And libertarians, and of course critics of libertarianism, have tried hard to poke holes in the principle. So just a few examples of how it can get kind of complicated at times. What about a man being chased in the woods by a wolf and he sees a cabin up ahead and safety therein, he's hoping. And so he runs up, but the door's locked. So he has to just bust through the door. And in the process of doing that, he fractures the, the door jam. Well, he just committed violence against someone else's property. So what do you do about that? Or similarly, what about a man whose family is starving to death and uh, he sees a pie sitting on the windowsill of the, the town bakery. May he steal it to preserve his family's life. What about a, a naval captain sitting off the shore of Britain in, let's say, the early 18th century or whatever, and he sees another slave trade ship passing by in the distance, and he's attacked a couple of those ships already. And by the gratefulness of the slaves that he's freed, he feels justified that he acted justly on behalf of those who could not help themselves. But what if he does it again, except after ambitiously boarding the slave trader's ship, and only after killing a couple of the slave traders, does he find out that this one was actually just a cruise ship that some wealthy Africans had hired to give them a tour of Iceland? Okay, what do you do then? Or what about spanking children as a means of discipline? Okay, how does that get sorted out in all of this with the non-aggression principle? So while there's some interesting things to work through, I think that most people can see that the non-aggression principle is pretty reasonable. Really, I think that the, the non-aggression principle is linked solidly to the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. That's really what's at the heart of it. That's why unjustified violence is wrong. It's wrong because it's taking something that doesn't belong to you. If you murder someone, okay, you're, you're stealing something from that person, namely their life. Or if you key someone's car, you're stealing something from them. Okay? They wanted an unmolested car. And the Bible, of course, 
straight up prohibit stealing. But this prohibition is a law of nations sort of thing. That is, virtually everybody of all time recognizes that stealing is morally wrong. There's even a whole genre sort of, of of comedy movies about bad guys who steal stuff and then those bad guys get upset when the stolen stuff gets stolen from them. You know, like it, you know, they steal a diamond and then a little baby crawls by and steals the diamond from them and then they're chasing a baby all over New York City or whatever. I've got kids. Those are the kind of movies I watch. <laughs> but why then, when most people think of libertarianism, do they think it's all about anti-government stuff? Liberty, liberty seems to be at the heart of the name libertarianism. So how do libertarians get there? Well, it comes back to the consistent application of the non-aggression principle, or you could say that libertarians are trying to consistently apply the Eighth Commandment and its implications. So... Yes, the libertarians are, and this is a careful distinction that George pointed out earlier, libertarians are anti-state. Libertarians believe in law and order and questions of morality are at the heart of what libertarianism is all about. So when you hear critics of libertarianism say things like libertarians are lawless, disorderly, immoral, anti-Christian, those critics are wrong. And so I hope that me opening the dictionary like I am right now will be helpful for them. Let's go from the L section of the dictionary to the S section. If we understand that libertarians are anti-state, maybe we should understand what a state is precisely. We should understand what it is at the very least because it impacts our lives tremendously in so many ways that you can see and in countless ways that you don't readily see at all. So, per the dictionary, quote, the state is that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force and violence in a given territorial area, while other individuals or institutions obtain their income by production of goods and services, and by the peaceful and voluntary sale of these goods and services to others, the state obtains its revenue by the use of compulsion, that is, by the use and the threat of the jailhouse and the bayonet. End quote. And that's, that's straight out of a booklet titled Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard, which I, I commend to you. Rothbard was, of course, the most influential uh, libertarian theorist, and, and you'll hear some more quotes from him later. But you will find his definition of the state to be identical in substance to any dictionary of political science. So the state, as a monopoly by force, is a monopoly on something. It provides goods or services to the people it rules over. And at the very least, it's a monopoly on law and law enforcement. But beyond law enforcement, there are often a whole host of goods and services that the state monopolizes. And what does that look like? Well, if you started a, a security service that directly competed with the city police, yeah, that's not going to fly. They're going to they're forcibly shut you down. They don't allow competition like that. And then there's everything else, um, like rules on how and when you can feed the homeless. Maybe you've seen the same headlines that I've seen in the last year or two where some church, you know, is set up in the, in the church parking lot trying to feed the poor and the state comes and says, no, you're not, you're not doing it right. You got to shut down. Okay. Um, you can't issue driver's licenses or fishing permits to people. You certainly can't counterfeit money. Okay, because uh, increasing the money supply and ripping off the American public is just something that the state does. <laughs> 
Because the state is a monopoly on goods and services, whichever ones it wants to provide, there is a political slash economic term that describes this. Socialism. So, staying here in the dictionary, what is socialism? Well, socialism is a monopoly on the ownership or the control of the means of production of goods or services. So if you have the institution of the state in society, then you have socialism. They go hand in hand. I saw one influential Christian nationalist in the last year tweet something to the effect that he thought if a church elder's son came out as a socialist, then that elder should resign from church government. And I thought to myself, I know his elders. They're all socialists themselves. Now, I think I know what he means, right? He means that he thinks lots of socialism is bad, but I'm going to insist on the dictionary because there is a real distinction here that's important. You have libertarians on one side who think that the state and socialism goes against the nature of the world that God made. And on the other side, you have a bunch of people who believe that socialism is a good baked into God's creation. And they're just arguing about how much socialism to have. But on what basis then do the libertarians believe socialism is wrong or goes against nature? Well, first of all, um, a monopoly to render goods and services that is protected by violence or threats of violence goes against the non-aggression principle, and all the more so when it's supported by taxation or funded in that way by involuntary taxation. That would be a moral argument. But secondly, and specifically how socialism goes against nature, the argument was cogently put together by an influential economist of the last century who wrote critically and extensively on the economics of socialism. His name was Ludwig von Mises. So Mises argues that without competition in a free market, without the ability to do economic calculations like producing a profit and loss statement, without the ability to work with prices that have meaning, it's impossible to know if you are allocating resources in a way that makes sense. So whether you are a socialized health and welfare service or a socialized police service or the Soviet Union, you have to face this reality about the nature of the world. So Mises says you have to have three things as a precondition for those economic calculations. You have to have private property in all stages of the production of goods and services. You have to have freedom to exchange those goods and services in a free market. And you have to have sound money. You have to have money that's free from political influence, um, which causes a lack of confidence in the soundness of money. And entrepreneurs kind of need to have confidence in money if they're going to do the things that they want to do. So all of these things are, of, co of course, tied to other economic principles, price theory, entrepreneurship, and so forth. But the point that I'm making for now is that socialism is unnatural. It goes against the natural order, and it goes against the natural order because it's impossible. Now, flip the dictionary to, to nationalism because we need to dive into what Christian nationalism is. Nationalism recognizes that, quote, everyone is necessarily born into a family, a language, and a culture. Every person is born into one or several overlapping communities, usually including an ethnic group with specific values, cultures, religious beliefs, and traditions. He is generally born into a country. He is always born into a specific historical context of time and place, meaning neighborhood and land area, end quote. Okay, so 
Which nationalist said this? Well, again, I'm quoting the libertarian Murray Rothbard. And he goes on to say, quote, one goal for libertarians should be to transform existing nation states into national entities whose boundaries could be called just in the same sense that private property boundaries are just. That is to decompose existing coercive nation states into genuine nations or nations by consent, end quote. So a couple of things here. First, the term nation does not equal state, right? I defined what a state is earlier, and I think Rothbard describes what a nation is pretty well. I think Christian nationalists would be just fine with his observation that nations are a natural thing, part of the natural order. And this is important for our dialogue going forward because if people use the words nation and state interchangeably, then they are just ushering in confusion for everyone. Secondly, notice how Rothbard is indeed a nationalist and a libertarian. These things aren't mutually exclusive. For Rothbard, he recognizes that the state is not part of the natural order. Socialism is not either, but nationalism is consistent with the natural order. So libertarians, Christian nationalists can have that in common at least. Another thing that I want to point out is I think the two camps have in, uh, I think they, they both, libertarians and Christian nationalists, have in common the recognition that the global American empire and the horrors of the socialist slash egalitarian agenda that are upon us are utterly wicked and pagan. I think libertarians have in many ways been pointing out some of the root causes for where we are today and have done so long before American conservatives really woke up to it. Okay, so it seems kind of disingenuous or uninformed to have them blame libertarians for it, as I, as I pointed out in the first quote at the beginning of my talk. Rothbard saw great compatibility between libertarianism and the conservatism of the old right. So I want to bring a little bit of uh, historical context here. Okay, Rothbard in 1992 writes this. From the 1930s through the first half of the 1950s, libertarians functioned as an important ideological ginger group within the broad coalition that we now know as the old or original right, a coalition forged in reaction against the horrors of the New Deal, both domestic and foreign. Libertarians felt themselves to be an extreme and consistent wing of the right, and they functioned within the broader coalition happily and harmoniously as friends and as ideological and political allies. <clears throat> Unfortunately, that old right coalition devoted to liberty, private property, free markets, and an anti-interventionist America first foreign policy began to collapse during the late 1950s as death and retirement in leadership ranks left a vacuum at the top that was filled by the burgeoning new right headed by Bill Buckley and National Review, end quote. End quote, but I'm gonna continue with Rothbard a little longer here because I think this is important. But first I want us to recognize that many of the ideals being pushed by Christian nationalists today and the old right of yesteryear are held in common with libertarians. And, and there wasn't always animosity there. But Rothbard continues, quote, that new right while in early days paying lip service to the forms of the old right, transformed it within a few years into a global crusading, warmongering, and basically pro-state movement. It became vital to stop giving libertarian and limited government cover to a movement that had been transformed into virtually their opposite, end quote. Okay, so what is happening today? Well, I think that Christian nationalists, at least some, are 
renouncing the new right, the Bill Buckley National Review right or the neocon right, and are returning to some of the ideals held by the old right. And that's why I think libertarians and Christian nationalists have an opportunity to get along better. Christian nationalism seems to be explicitly rejecting that new right, now something that the libertarians did back in the 50s. So Stephen Wolf writes in the epilogue to his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, quote, the Christian nationalist project is not conservative. Post-World War II conservatism is inadequate for our situation. I have no interest in conserving the liberalism of the 1980s or 1990s or the militaristic adventure imperialism of the compassionate conservatives of the 2000s, end quote. The epilogue to his book, titled What Now?, is in many ways a fantastic repudiation of the new right. And much of what he is communicating here is the same thing that made many of us, who are now libertarians, who were once conservatives, abandon that conservatism for something that more consistently orders society morally, consistent with natural law, and consistent with scripture. Drawing from Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, I'm going to flesh out uh, what I see as his argument um, as it relates to civil government. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time specifically identifying the ways in which a Christian libertarian would disagree with Wolf. I think with the backdrop of the, the dictionary definitions that I've already given, you'll be able to imagine what they are as I highlight some of Wolf's views. So, Wolf claims that civil law must flow from natural law, and libertarians agree on this. But the libertarian view and Wolf's view depart from one another in pretty short order. So Wolf argues that virtually any sphere that the natural law may hold any truths about social relations and morality, the magistrate has a right to rule anywhere in that sphere. So it flows that those in positions of power may make positive laws regarding morality or laws concerning central planning, speed limits, fishing licenses, etc. Basically, the state, and Wolf does endorse the state as the institution in society, society to do this, has powers derived from the natural law in a very, 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 very broad sense. He writes that these civil laws derived from the natural law may change from society to society. He says, quote, though natural law is a universal law, you cannot derive from it a universally suitable body of civil law. Many laws are indeed based in circumstances and thus particular and mutable, end quote. Well, then how does this relate to natural rights? Wolf says this, quote, one has a natural right to life and a right to liberty to the extent of his self-governability. I also affirm a natural right to one's property, though I will not argue for it here, end quote. And actually, that's kind of sad. That would have been the perfect time in the argument for the case of, of what you believe on, on private property rights or natural rights. That's kind of a big deal at the stage of the argument. But the key thing in here is that he affirms one's natural rights to an extent to the extent of one's self-governability, okay, which is very subjective. But, but for Wolf, mankind can only self-govern so far, and then you need the, the Christian rulers to step in. The libertarians say that the natural law is clear as it regards governance over life together and how justice is administered, and that law derived from the natural law is basically very narrow, 
thou shalt not steal. Okay? But for Wolf, the natural law provides great breadth for any civil laws to order society, and those laws may change depending on place to place or whatever, depending on whatever circumstances. Next, for Wolf, civil laws are nothing if there is no one to bring action to them, and thus we must have a prince. Wolf describes this prince, quote, I envision a measured and theocratic Caesarism. The prince is a world shaker for our time who brings a Christian people to self-consciousness and who, in his rise, restores their will for their good. Prince is a fitting title for a man of dignity and greatness of soul who will lead a people to liberty, virtue, and godliness, to greatness, end quote. So this prince is necessary according to nature, Wolf argues. And he writes, quote, this is a consequence of natural reason. Would God create something that lacks what is necessary for that thing to achieve its purpose? Would God create human society with an inherent need for an ordering agent and not provide the power for ordering? End quote. But to be clear, for Wolf, this prince is not just an administration of enforcing civil laws. It is the authoritative law-creating power to do whatever the Christian prince feels is most necessary for his people. He concludes from it this, quote, Thus the prince holds the most excellent office, exceeding even that of the church minister, for it is most like God, end quote. The prince, then, is necessary for mankind to achieve its ends. Quote, He, the prince, is a master in the master's universe. The prince personifies their national spirit, unifies them under a mission, and inspires intergenerational will to live. He directs men in fulfilling the dominion mandate to fulfill man's nature. End quote. And then one more quote from Wolf as he continues to wax on in his magistrophilia. He says, quote, the Christian prince ought to do everything in his power to advance the kingdom of Christ, end quote. So the Christian prince ought to do everything in his power to advance the kingdom of Christ. Well, how does the prince legitimately gain the powers to rule so broadly? Okay? For Wolf, the means are not just like a laying on of hands in a religious ceremony, but the means by which the prince is proved to be ordained by God with, this, with these powers is through the consent of the people, consent of the nation. Okay, and I also want to mention, and unless I missed it in Wolf's book, Wolf does not address the economic implications of the state's participation, or you might say the state's interventions in the market, okay, where people interact. So kind of referencing back to, to my arguments about socialism. And, and those economic considerations cannot be ignored by anyone with aims of living consistently with the natural order of things. Okay, I'll stop there. I don't, I don't have time uh, to deal with every point from, from Wolf as I've highlighted them here. What I have tried to do is show where libertarianism and Christian nationalism have views very much in common, and I hope that the differences between the two are highlighted by trying to succinctly and accurately define some things, including libertarianism. So in conclusion, what I, what I appreciate from Wolf's book and from the Christian nationalists more generally is the attempt to order society in a way that is consistent with the nature of the world that God has created. That's what natural law libertarianism is all about. That's what we do here at the George Buchanan Forum. Earlier, I quoted Stephen Wolf saying that conservatism is inadequate for our situation. And Christian nationalists believe that their approach is very pragmatic. 
they would criticize the libertarians in the same way that the libertarian dream doesn't have the teeth to get us through the mess that the world is in currently. And I'll let you make up your mind if the Christian nationalist dream of the Christian prince is any more realistic than anything else. So here's what I think would be great. Since we do have so much in common, the nature of nationalism as defined here, the necessity of building meaningful and lasting Christian culture, the rejection of the new right, the agreement on the state of society and culture today in the United States and in the world, why wouldn't the Christian nationalists be much more open to discussing the application of the natural law with libertarians? Instead, we see misrepresentation of libertarianism coming from the Christian nationalists, and that's disappointing since they are the ones who want to insist on the dictionary. And honestly, if you were looking for a poster boy for natural law Christian nationalism, we already have it here in George Buchanan. That's what he was. But if the Christian nationalists want to continue to insist that libertarianism is an anti-Christian ideology that is in great part responsible for the depravity of our day, then all we have to say is good luck with the socialism, good luck with the prince, and good luck with your dictionary. Thank you.